everyone. If I could just get your attention. My name is Abigail Lanier, and I'm here as one of the new voice scholars. Um, we'd love for you to come and talk to the other 25 of us represented here, but um, I'm coming from Brooklyn, working with a nonprofit that provides resources and opportunities to musicians and individuals who have blindness. I'm also working on a podcast that's just starting there. Uh, it's in the works, it's not out yet, but at the dish is what it's called, so be looking for it. But I'm here to introduce to you Leah Tao, and um, you all know a little bit about her presentation here, and I'm sure you're familiar with her work with strangers. Um, a little factoid, fun little factoid about her is that she recently started seeing someone, and for those of you who know anything about her story, that's very exciting. So without further ado, I'll let her take the stage. Hi. Thanks, Abigail. That was a reference to a series I did recently. Um, but uh, I'm so excited to be hosting this panel because I'm excited about the development in the world that it reflects. And it was already talked about in the framing up of this entire conference a lot this morning, I feel. This idea that you can now make something, you can own it, you can actually find an audience for it and make money doing it. But um, judging from the emails I get from people, there are a lot of questions about, okay, but how exactly do you do that? And so that's what these two panels are about today and tomorrow. And so tomorrow's panel, uh, we're going to hear from some people on the business side of things about how does the money work and what are they looking for in people that they, creatives that they want to partner with and so on. But today we have three makers on the panel who are already making and owning uh, their thing. And um, it's Nick Vanderkoek from Love and Radio, Hilary Frank uh, of The Longest Shortest Time, and Daniel Alcon of Radio Ambulante. Um, so uh, they uh, are doing something and are doing it well, and I think it will be helpful to hear from them. Um, it's not a, even though they're makers and they make great things, it's not a radio making workshop. Um, there are lots of other sessions here at Third Coast where you can learn about how to make better radio. Um, of course, some creative questions do go into this question of how do you create something successful. Um, what's your idea in the first place and of course execution and balancing things like how much time do you spend actually producing versus fundraising or marketing um, and you know how long do you fiddle with something do you spend a year making it perfect versus putting things out all the time and so yes creative questions go into it but it's more about what is this path uh, that you can take to creating your own thing um, and also to then potentially finding partnerships with existing institutions. Um, so this is in no way an institution bashing session because, in fact, all three of the panelists here um, started fully independently, but um, now all have relationships uh, with long-standing public radio institutions. And so um, I think there's an enormous opportunity there for both sides uh, to, as a win-win. Uh, and I think it's been tremendous for, for all of you and for, for me to have these relationships. Unlike the panelists, I actually didn't start fully independently. I had a relationship with KCRW and their independent producer project from the start. 
And I honestly don't know if I would have started if I hadn't had that. So um, I had to find some people who are a little bolder than myself <laughs> to be on the panel. But um, And I've had a great relationship with them and now also with KCW, I mean with PRX, uh, because I'm part of Radiotopia. And my experience with both in- institutions has been that they have let me do my thing. They've not wanted to micromanage or, or sit on me. And I think that there is a, a lesson for institutions in this whole development right now and we'll hear more about that tomorrow also from some of these institutions that are doing it and are doing it really well where instead of uh, what can sometimes happen and I know some people have had this experience with institutions that uh, it takes so much money and uh, to to get something greenlit that it's like there's so many decision makers and they end up wanting to kind of squash the creativity out of you and, and make you sound just like everything else they already have and I think there's a tremendous movement away from that um, that is really exciting and I think it's a wake up call for institutions that haven't figured that out yet um, a lot of them have and a lot of them that are here at Third Coast have because if not they wouldn't they wouldn't be here but I think that, that it's an interesting time we're in right now um, I do own my show and I also before I you know speaking to this whole question um, before I started Strangers I ran The Moth for many years the live storytelling organization The Moth and had an experience there where I tried for eight years to get The Moth on the radio before it actually happened it's now a national public radio show but nobody wanted it and uh, every door was very emphatically slammed in my face We we have no interest in making your show a radio show and so when podcasting happened, um, my friend forwarded me the press release like the week Apple launched podcasting, and he was like, I think this could be kind of interesting for the moth. And I have to be honest and say my first reaction was like, what? Like, we were really poor for a long time before we kind of hit the big time, and I was like, we're going to take this. We have one valuable thing, right? And that's this archive that we've actually recorded well and invested in recording well while being so poor that, like, we had a crappy office and barely had furniture and, like, worked insane hours and would sit, like, on the floor at 11 p.m. eating cold pasta out of a can. Like, I felt like that's always the image I have when I think of the early days of the moth. And so I was like, we're going to take that and give it away for free and it seemed kind of insane but then when two more years had gone by and it became clear that like there was nobody in public radio anymore that I had access to who might be willing to put this on the radio I thought oh screw it let's just do it and that opened up so many doors for us and put us on the map nationally and it brought in all kinds of money that I hadn't been able to anticipate and um and then because of the success of that, we were able to create a national radio show with PRX and sort of go straight to national and bypass the, the typical radio model of doing something local. Uh, and then uh, if you're very successful at it, um, you can maybe get syndicated nationally. And so that was my first adve- adventure with podcasting. And now I think there are so many other shows that have shown the same thing, which is if you just start doing it and you put it out there and it's good, um, you can find a path to success. And then suddenly you're in a very different kind of position. In suddenly the institutions are courting you that maybe before you, you either just they didn't want to talk to you or, you know, they didn't want to do it, or you just didn't know how to get access to them, right? So that's a lot of what uh, today is about. But um, we're going to have a lot of time for Q&A, because I think you guys will 
want to hear, um, I mean, we'll want to hear from you, and I think you'll probably have a lot of questions. Um, but first, I thought it could just be really interesting to hear from the panelists how, what they've done, because there's no one right way to do this, right? It's not like there's one model. Everybody's done it in different ways and made different choices. And I thought we could start with Nick, because Nick has basically been podcasting since you had to hand roll your own feed, right? I mean, you're like, you, yeah, you're like the, the, one of the first men of podcasting. So can you talk a little bit about just how, why did you start the show? How did you start the show? What's been the path and, and so on? Yeah, so uh, Love and Radio started in 2005, uh, and uh, it was actually, uh, it even had a precursor show in my college radio days. Um, Adrian Mathewitz and I did like sort of a storytelling show that we really were just were trying to have fun with. And uh, and then that eventually turned into Love and Radio, and we were doing this at a point when, you know, there were no podcasts in the iTunes store. Um, in order to actually update the RSS feed, you had to go in and edit it with a text editor, and put in all the metadata yourself by hand. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, I I think it it really started uh, not with that many. Uh, sort of grand uh, ambitions. It was just this sandbox that we would have to like play around with the form and really, um, really just kind of have fun with it and talk to interesting people and um, throw a lot of stuff at the wall and sort of see what stuck. Um, so I, I sort of view. I think kind of when we look back at the history of the show, I think uh, the generally be sort of three stages uh, that that all think about anyway. The first is sort of what do we want the show to sound like? And so there was this whole kind of experimental stage and then to some... And obviously, like, I want to keep experimenting with stuff, but uh, I think the show has sort of developed its kind of a particular style, a particular format. Um, this past year, you know, thanks to support from Radiotopia, we've been able to produce a lot more and uh, and that stage has just been like build up the audience, and uh, sort of the third stage, which we're kind of entering now, is like actually creating sort of a sustained business out of it. Um, but uh, but honestly, like like you know, so that that podcast has been a project for an incredibly long time with like huge breaks. I mean, we we uh, stopped producing stuff for like three years at a time. And then we would get like a little bit of institutional support and kept doing it. And you know, the great thing about podcasting and, and sort of on-demand listening is that it just—it's always out there. It's always evergreen. It's—it's it's waiting for people to discover it. And we were just like always just feeding that, you know, bit by bit by bit. Um, and so that subscriber level was just always kind of creeping up and up and up. Um, and so I think we we definitely took a sort of much longer road than I would probably recommend a lot of people <laughs> uh, do. But um, but I think it's it's certainly an example where that where that works. Can I ask you why a, a show, why a podcast? Like it seems like a lot of talented young producers like you were when you started this would try to make these pieces and get them placed somewhere. Why did you choose this? I'm path? I'm really terrible at pitching. You know, I'm really bad at articulating uh, why a story is super important. It's a, it's a much more intuitive process. And so, you know, I had to create this other zone 
uh, of, of total wildness uh, where I could just, I could play with those things, honestly, you know. Um, like, I remember uh, I would be having these conversations with Tori Maltia, who uh, was a fan of the show, and, um, and he, the first one that got him really excited was the wisdom of Jay Thunderbolt, who is this guy who uh, runs a strip club out of his house. And, uh, and that was also my first collaboration with Brendan Baker, who's a super important part of the show now, um, who composed you know, original scoring around that, that whole interview. So it was sort of this, this music documentary hybrid kind of. And I remember having this conversation with Tori where he was like, I, I don't have any idea how you could have pitched this story and me say, like, okay, yeah, go do that. But this is, this is really valuable. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's difficult to articulate, but it's just like, it's like I, I knew that this was stuff, was, it was stuff that interested me in a very deep way. And so I was just going to chase down, you know, go down those rabbit holes, you know. But just so we're clear, like you, until very recently, made virtually no money doing this, right? Yeah, we got, um, for, we got commissioned to do six episodes with uh, WBEZ. Um, which we got a little bit of money for, uh, but until Radiotopia came along, it wasn't it wasn't something that we could like be, you know, quitting our jobs or you know anything like that. So that's but that's been the last. You year. had some attempts with some different partnerships, right? But it didn't quite pan out in terms of of making you a living. Yeah. So uh, you know, podcasting has sort of had two kind of. We're in the sort of second stage of podcasting as a big overhyped thing. Uh, maybe not overhyped. Sorry. Bad, bad choice of words. <laughs> well hyped. Legitimately yeah. hyped. Legitimate. Well, that's the thing. Is like, I think the first, the first stage, it was this overhype, and that was basically when, you know, when iTunes decided, okay, we're going to get on this podcasting thing. We're going to have a podcast directory. And then it was like there was this huge promise of podcasting back then of like it's going to just you know, democratize media and it's going to be really great. And, and the, and the thing is, is that actually like, if you wanted to do, you know, if you wanted to do some super weird show that like very few people were going to listen to, you had other avenues before podcasting. Like there, you know, there were community radio stations where, you know, the bar wasn't that high to like actually get something on the air. Um, and so then people were totally surprised. Oh, like there's all this unpaid content and most of it's like pretty terrible. Um, and that was in that first stage, and then so then like everyone, you know, I like it's it's so we it's so weird like at at this conference, just even overhearing people use the word podcast as much as they do, because <laughs> it's like like I grew up at a time sort of when like it was this like a somewhat shameful thing like <laughs> you go to a party or yeah. whatever. And and uh, I would get introduced by a friend like, oh, this is Nikki does a podcast, and I'd be like, uh. oh, God, like, <laughs> <laughs> like no, but people like like it and they like listen yeah. and they're engaged yeah. by it, you know. Um, it's true. I felt that way until like six months ago. I yeah, think. exactly. Yeah. So anyway, um, but so uh, one <laughs> thing I want to ask you because I, you know, there's this thing in podcasting where frequency and regularity is often preached as like you must put it out regularly and you must put it out as often as you can and if you don't do that you're gonna die and I feel like you're one of the people who has been successful at kind of saying no I'm gonna put it out when it's good like I'm gonna I'm not gonna 
go for that. And can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, if your goal is to grow an audience, that's not a very good way of going about it. You know, well, but that's not entirely true because you have a pretty good audience now. Yeah, I mean, but it takes a lot. It takes a lot more time for sure. I mean, it's a it's a it's a privileged sort of position to take. I think. To a certain degree, I wouldn't necessarily. If you can produce with more regularity than that, then I would say go for it. But it also depends on like what you're trying to make. You know what I what I've been trying to make with Love and Radio is is something that was like <coughs> almost less like normal radio and more like you know like House of Cards or something like that, where you know people could um, could come across it later down the line and actually. Um, you know, experience like a lot of really, really high quality stuff in a row, um, and it's just it's just it's a, it's a different goal. I don't know, and it's it, I guess it really just depends on what people are trying to do with it. You know, if I was just doing like a regular talk show where I was just having guests on regularly, which is which is good. Like I listen to a lot of programs like that. Then yeah, you're gonna want to do weekly stuff for sure. But if you're doing something that's like kind of more in the realm of it always sounds pretentious when you're like comparing it to cinema, but that's that's what it feels like, you know. I it's want art. I want each, yeah, I want each episode not necessarily to be like precious, but I want it to be this thing that that people can like re-listen to, you know. I mean, I get emails from people who say like, "You're the only podcast I li- that I will go back and I will re-listen to stuff over and over again," and and that's great. Like that's what I'm going for, you know. And also, you know, I think there's this. Uh, choice for a lot of people, right? That it's like, okay, great, I can start something, I can have my day job, and that's how I pay the rent, and then I can do this evenings and weekends, but like, and you've sometimes taken a lot of time off from the show because you were doing that, or you've not been able to put it out very much because you chose that model, but, and then there's the other model of saying, okay, I'm going to put all my time into that and all this time that would go into my day job is now going to go into fundraising for and marketing this show. And and by the way, the actual time that you have for production doesn't increase tremendously in in, in that because that takes so much time, right? But it's just where is the money going to come from? And so, Hillary, you have taken a very different approach. I mean, we can hear more from everybody and we'll hear all your questions, but I think this is a good segue to you because you know, unlike Nick, who was like, we're not going to spend any time fundraising. We're going to be artists and we're going to make a living however we can and we're going to put it out when it's really good. You've been producing really good stuff, but you also made that leap of saying, I can't keep doing this unless I raise some money for it. And so can you talk about your path a little bit and how sure. you started? And Yeah. Yeah, so I do, um, for, for anyone who doesn't know, I do a show about um, parenthood. And um, I started it when I... My daughter was um, almost a year old, and um, media was changing a lot. I mean, podcasting was just starting to become, you know, popular, and I had um, had more than a decade doing terrestrial radio as an independent and kind of scrambling to to put that all together, do pieces and 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 you know, edit here and there for shows, um, and just cobbling things together for years, and it's exhausting, and. Um, I wasn't quite ready to go back to work full time, but I wanted to not be irrelevant when I was ready. And so um, uh, I was also, it was also personally motivated. I um, 
was feeling very alone uh, due to due to some difficult circumstances after my daughter was born, and um, wanted to connect like really deeply with with other moms uh, and hear what their struggles were. And so I knew that uh, like podcasting was a super easy way that I could do that um, for free and just put it out there and see. Um, you know, it wasn't even. I wasn't even trying to develop an audience. It was just something to do to show that um, I still had my chops. You know, when I when I was going to go back to work, um, and then a while in, I started trying to um, pitch it places, and basically, that's when I started being told your audience isn't big enough for us to want to pick you up, uh, or. Actually, we were just talking about this in the the, the women's voices uh, lunch uh, um, unconferencing group. Um, I would sometimes be told, "You you sound too much like a little girl," or <laughs> you know, like just these uh, things that made it seem like, "Well, this is, well, this isn't going to be my job, but I'm going to keep doing it until until I can uh, figure out what my job's going to be." And so, for money, I was um, tutoring. Uh, college applicants on their on their essays um, and uh, at a certain point I was like and I did the podcast just whenever whenever I felt like I wanted to because I felt like it wasn't going to be good um, the whole point of it was to make something good and I felt like it wasn't going to be good if I was doing it when I didn't want to or didn't have time to do it I was rushing it so um, at a certain point I was like I either need to do this full time or I need to do the college tutoring thing and um so i i had been you know following roman mars's success and i thought well maybe i'll try a kickstarter and it'll be my like last gasp attempt at this and um i went and i did this kickstarter and um before it i i went and approached all of like my dream sponsors and uh I decided that I was only going to approach people that I could genuinely say to them, um, I felt like your company supported me as a new mom. And um, I started like trying to find email addresses for like marketing managers, and I thought, who's, who's going to open an email from me if they don't know me? And, and I thought, well, what I'm trying to sell is my voice and my ability to tell a story and to connect and you can get someone's voicemail very easily if you call a company and say, I, I want to talk to your marketing manager, or if you found a name on their website. Um, and I started leaving these voicemails explaining um, what I was doing and why I wanted to connect with them, and that I was doing this Kickstarter, and I was hoping that they would give me, um, you know, that, that, that they would support me and maybe do a challenge grant. And um, almost everyone said yes. And they all said, we have never supported radio before or a podcast before or a Kickstarter before, but what you're saying is very compelling. And, um, and that, you know, that was great. And I had, so I knew I had that lined up before I started my Kickstarter. And so I could sort of estimate, like, how much do I think is going to come in from that? And how much more do I think I can get from the audience? Um, and it wound up being successful. Um, and I made $10,000 over my goal. Um, and at that point, um, I was approached by WMYC, um, and I think, um, you can, you can hear from Chris Bannon tomorrow, who's in the audience, he's, he's my manager at WMYC, but I think the reason that they came to me was that they saw that, um, independently, I knew how to, um, not only make content that, 
um, people were willing to pay for, but that organizations uh, were willing to pay for, and 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 that I knew how I, I knew how to run this as a business and not just um, a creative endeavor. And I think what you did with your Kickstarter was something that I haven't seen done too much by anyone else, uh, and especially with a fairly new show, because there are kind of two challenges. One is selling sponsorship on your show if you don't have a huge audience and an agent doing this on your behalf. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And doing a Kickstarter is also uh, will kick your ass and is hard if you don't have a huge following yet, right? So you kind of combined those two things. So those companies, and like the match for the Kickstarter actually kind of bought them sponsorship on the show. Is mm-hmm. that right? That's Which right. I thought was incredibly clever. And you also, um, so, uh, you know, and also this point that like, what had your audience grown much when WNYC approached you, or was it more that they said, "Wow, she's an entrepreneur. She know she she's raising money. Like she's serious about it." It grew, but it hadn't grown to the point where I had been told it had to grow for anyone to be interested in supporting me. Um, I think it was more that I proved, uh, you know, I proved that I was going to keep doing it whether I was partnered with anyone or not, and um, and that I and that I understood how to make the content appealing to underwriters. And so what has that been like for you, having that relationship with WNYC? How has that changed things, and what has that provided for you? So, you know, like I said, I've been an independent for 15 years, and um, and I've worked in and out of um, radio stations and stuff, but never been, like, full-time anywhere. And so this is my first time, um, you know, being... I, I've been working on this show for four years almost now and, and and on my own and now I'm integrating into like a giant organization um, that has its own way of operating and um, and it's been I mean it, it's been great um, one of the, one of the one of the great things is that um, I mean so so I get the equivalent of a salary um, although I'm not I'm not on their payroll it's, I'm still paid as an independent um, and then I have a producer who is employed by them, um, and that was that. That is like the best part of the deal for me. Um, and being integrated into that big organization also means, though, that there's a lot of like um, intercommunication um, in within the organization that needs to happen. And, and my producer Joanna is here too. And so, and like a lot of her job, which I think when I thought, oh, I'm getting a producer, I thought. Uh, I'm going to have a producer working on my show with me. And I didn't realize that being a part of an organization also means you need to liaise between all of these different departments. And, um, and so that's been a big part of her job. Um, and, uh, and, and sometimes those, sometimes those different departments, they, they talk amongst themselves and don't necessarily connect with each other. And so we're learning the ropes. Um, and I've been there for seven months now and we're like starting to get in the swing of things, but it's, it's like a, a learning curve. And is there a promotional part of it, too? Because I think this is the biggest challenge, right, with podcasting, which has so many other advantages over traditional broadcast. It doesn't have to be the time. It doesn't have to be FCC compliant, uh, all of these things. But there is the one disadvantage that, like, you don't just, people don't just get in their car, turn on the radio in their kitchen, and there you are. And so they have to find you somehow. And I think that's something I want to spend a little bit more time on. But has, is, 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 part of, is that part of your... Yeah, I get. Yeah, um, we've been doing on-air promos, which have been very helpful. Um, I mean, I've I've heard a lot that there isn't um, a lot of crossover between terrestrial radio and and podcasts, uh, digital media. So, like, 
if you go on um, a terrestrial radio show, it's not necessarily going to translate into a big bump in your podcast audience, but I have found that with the on-air promos, that, that has worked out well. Excellent. And so, Daniel, tell us a little bit about your experience. In addition to having all the challenges that people have in podcasting when they're just starting out, you also, you also were doing it in Spanish. Yeah. So can, can you talk about why you even wanted to do this in the first place and where you are now? And Well, I, don't, I, I, I won't see that as a challenge so much as an opportunity. I mean, we uh, started in 2011 behind closed doors, basically with uh, Carolina Guerrero, my wife, and Martina Castro from KLW, and Annie Correal, who's now at the New York Times. And what we saw was that um, there's this incredible form, you know, long-form narrative journalist uh, journalism in audio. And, it, uh, you know, there's an, a number of, you know, fantastic shows here in the United States that were doing it. Um, and there was no one doing it in Spanish, you know. Um, Radio in Latin America is huge. Radio among Latinos is huge. You know, the, the radio's on the whole damn day. Um, um, smartphone penetration is very high among Latinos in the United States, and it's growing in Latin America. So we just saw a huge opportunity. We didn't see it as a challenge because, you know, we're journalists and we speak Spanish, so that's not a challenge. Um, the challenge has been convincing um, some of these institutions that, uh, that it's worth paying for content in Spanish. And that, that's been the challenge that continues to be the challenge, I think. Um, but what we saw was just a huge open space where it was just, you know, dying for content. Um, and what we found is that that audience was, uh, our intuition told us that audience existed and they were hungry for this kind of stuff, and, and we found that to be the case. In Latin America or... And in yeah. the U.S., there's 50 million uh, Spanish speakers in the United States. Um, so one of the premises of the show was that the United States is a Latin American country, um, you know, there's 50 million Spanish speakers here. That's more than in Peru, the country where I was born. Um, and Peru's obviously Latin American, so then why isn't the United States? Um, we also thought, uh, just from looking around, you live in you know, San Francisco, you live in New York, you live in Chicago, you live in anywhere these days. And if you're Latino, you are meeting people from everywhere. So, you know, I'm Peruvian, my wife is Colombian, our friends are Chilean or Ecuadorian or Mexican. And... Um, and uh, what we start to see is kind of a regional consciousness. And so I'm interested in, in Chilean stories. I'm interested in Mexican stories. Um, I'm interested in, 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 you know, in stories from Puerto Rico and Cuba and Central America and on and on. And we saw all of this as just a huge opportunity. That there's a new, um, there's a developing uh, demographic of people who are not provincial in their concerns. Where if you tell a good story from Chile, it's not just that Chileans are going to hear it and be interested in it, that know that Argentines are going to be interested in Mexicans are going to be interested in Colombians. And then another huge market, Americans, like non-Hispanic, non-Latino Americans, who want to learn Spanish. So, you know, what you call the challenge, I, I just, I mean, or, you know, I just see it's like a gigantic opportunity, and I just feel blessed that we were the first ones to go through the gate, because we're obviously not going to be the only ones. Uh, I think we're just perfectly poised, you know, to fucking kill it, frankly, um, and um, and so you know what we've been doing is a lot of, a lot of what uh, Nick and Hillary have been talking about, which is just you know do the very best work you can, do it as regularly as you can, you know. And and, and the first season was really hard. We tried doing hour long episodes. That was just very difficult. Um, we were, we just couldn't meet our own sort of deadlines, and we saw we were losing audiences. Um, so then we both scaled back in terms of 
of what we were releasing. Instead of doing an episode with three or four or five stories, we were doing one story at a time, and we increased our regularity um, and you know increased our production. That was a huge challenge, but it it, it you know we started seeing our numbers go up, and um, we also launched with a Kickstarter campaign, and this is where we knew. I mean, we had not we had like a thirty minute audio sampler. Um, and uh, we got 600 backers and 46,000 dollars from 20 countries, you know. And that was, you know, to me, I was like, you know, we don't have anything. Like, I don't even know how to hold a microphone at that point. And and we were able just on the idea, you know, because you know, people now in Latin America, because of the internet, are listening to Radio Lab, listening to this American Life, they're listening to Radiotopia shows, and all of this. Um, <clears throat> there are plenty of people who can listen to it in English. Um, but they would rather listen to it in Spanish if it exists, but it just didn't. So we started making it. So just how, how do people primarily listen to the, your show, or, or how do they listen? What are the different ways? Well, so we, we have a website. We're on iTunes. Um, we have a, a, a content sharing agreement with BBC Mundo, um, which was huge. You know, uh, when we, we signed that contract basically on a napkin in a bar in San Francisco um, uh, in the beginning of our second season. And, uh, and our numbers immediately went up, you know, from, you know, 2,000 listens a month to, you know, now we're at 140,000 or so a month, you know, um, because they have 8.5 million uh, page views, you know, unique, visitor, unique visitors a month. So they put our stuff on, on their website, um, and they tweet it out a bunch of times and put it on their Facebook page, and the hits just start coming. <clears throat> which is huge, you know, a fantastic uh, opportunity for us to reach an, a, a new audience. Um, we're also on terrestrial radio in Argentina and Colombia, national national radio in Colombia, um, in Chile, uh, in Mexico, number of markets in Mexico, and on Radio Bilingue Network that covers, um, you know, half the United States, community radio stations in Spanish. And does that bring in any money, or that's just... <clears throat> I mean, frankly, nothing brings in any money, you know? Um, I mean, real money. You know, we've, we've, I think we're at the point where you aggregate those numbers and you can go to somebody um, and, and say, hey, you know, now we have an audience. Um, and we're just starting that process because we do feel like for the right company, um, you know, someone who has, you know, an airline or a bank or somebody that has connections, you know, um, between the U.S. and, and Latin America, it's, it's, a, it's a really exciting market to be able to reach people who have smartphones who travel who are interested in stories from all over the region or you know college students in the United States learning Spanish you know who are going to travel to Latin America I mean these are all sort of marketable people these are not things that I ever thought about until like 18 months ago by the way (laughs) (coughs) you started just because you out of the creative uh, need for stories like this yeah well I'm a novelist um I write novels and stories, and, and, uh, and I do long-form journalism print. Um, that's the world I come from. And uh, my father was a, a, a sports, uh, like a soccer announcer in Peru in the 50s. So we're a radio family, um, and, you know, this was just something that I really loved. I wrote my first novel about radio, you know what I mean? And, um, and then I, I got the opportunity to, the BBC asked me to do a radio documentary, and I just, I'd never done it before, and I jumped at the chance. And the, I mean, this is the origin story, basically, is that I was asked to go to Peru and, and do this radio documentary. I did interviews in Spanish and in English and, and all this stuff. And, and when they actually did the, the final edit, they cut a bunch of the, the cool Spanish tape. And um, that was kind of frustrating. And so I was like, oh, what do I do? 
uh, I, cu- I couldn't do anything. But it was just in my mind, like, what would it be like if we had a space in Spanish for those stories? And then, you know, three years later, my wife and I were in a cafe, and she was between projects, and I was trying to write a novel and completely just devastatedly, you know, stuck, you know, with that book. And um, I was like, what do I do? You know, so I, I was like, well, let me pick the other least well-paid line of work. <laughs> <coughs> so, so I went from literature to radio. And, uh, and we were just sitting in a cafe in San Francisco, and I was like, you know, we should do this. And Carolina was like, yeah, let's do it. And so um, you are still a long way from a place where you and your wife, since you actually made the bad, not just one of you, but two of you yeah, got into ter- something that makes no money. Like some there. people I know, it's like, oh, I could kind of do this because my spouse can like sometimes pay the rent when I don't have any money. Right. But um, so you're still a long way from where it's making a living for either one of you. And what has, you've gotten some grants, right? You now have a relationship with PRI. Can right. you, yeah. Well, we have gotten some, some small grants. Um, uh, we've gotten key support from PRI, um, uh, key support from the Pantarea Foundation. I think we're, 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 you know, we're getting there. I don't know. Um, I think our challenge has been, look, more than 60% of our audience lives in the United States. And so my pitch to public radio is like, well, you're supposed to serve the public. The public, my audience, lives here. So why are they not considered the public just because they speak Spanish? Um, because and people want to give you money to produce in English. Even people want the whole con- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. People want to produce our content in English, um, you know, b- because because they they just I can't understand what I'm saying when I speak in Spanish. I guess. Um, <laughs> <coughs> so I, I mean I I find it frustrating, fr- frankly, um, but we've learned to live with it. So we take uh, money um, that's given you know PRI pays for our interview series called Unscripted um, for, for the season and. I love doing the show. I think it's 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 really fun. I get to talk to interesting people, and we had enough money to you know hire a producer so that I don't have to do any of the editing. I just do the interview, and then it appears magically on on the website, and that's fantastic. Um, but we have to do that very 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 efficiently so that we can stretch that money like silly putty to pay the other stuff. When the other stuff actually is what we want to do, you know, um, and um, and so yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because I think that our core mission is telling stories in Spanish, and I think that that's a perfectly legitimate core mission. Um, it just so happens that that core mission is hard to fund in the United States. Um, and I have, you know, 101 arguments that I could bore everyone with about why that's a myopic point of view. Um, but it just, it is. It is. And I've, I've come across it everywhere I go. So... Um I, I want to open it up to to questions from you guys, but I wonder if maybe each of you could speak to, like, this question of how do you find an audience, I think is a big one. I think we're probably also going to get a lot of questions about the money, and so we'll answer those. And I, I think, you know, there's, <coughs> you represent some very different fields. I know a lot of people ask me about grants, and I think it, a lot of podcasters have had the experience that it's very hard to get grants for something that's podcast only, that the grant funders are not necessarily there um, but I think depending like you've been successful in getting some grants uh, I think right moderately successful yes. yeah and um, and Hillary you know you were able to sell these sponsorships early on which I know people have a hard time doing I think there's an opportunity if you have a show that has a particular theme like a particular niche like 
I know Roman Mars also before he was a megastar um, already, you know, uh, was able to sell sponsorship on the show because it was about design and architecture. And so people who do uh, institutions or publications that deal with design and architecture wanted to sponsor his show because it made sense for them. It was an easy fit. And you had this parenting thing. So you could, you know, baby formula and other uh, things. And, and then that's just some, a good thing to keep in mind. I'm not saying design your show around like, oh, can I get sponsorship on it? But I think that it's good to... Um, to, to just realize that like each different show is going to have appeal to different types of funders and different income sources potentially. Um, but so, uh, you know, I, I, you guys are, are welcome to, to speak more to that as well. But I, I thought like what's been the audience path and what do you think is, is key in, in finding an audience? Um, can you, and, and do you have sort of one piece of advice maybe for someone who's, who's starting this, not necessarily on the audience, but just on the whole thing? Like, how do you make a podcast? Do you have one piece of advice on that? And, and can you talk a little bit about what do you feel has been m- m- most successful or in, in finding you an audience? I mean, I, I can definitely say that uh, the, the number one way we've gotten audience from people, other than word of mouth, has just been getting stuff aired on other shows, you know? I think the first big spike we got was when I had a piece that aired on 99% Invisible and, um, and, uh, and Roman recommended it um, and, and recommended it in a, in a um, very serious way because I think, um, interestingly, uh, the, the first time I had a piece on 99% Invisible, uh, he followed it up by you know, singing the praises of the show. I think this was before his Kickstarter, so... He didn't have quite as huge an audience as he had. And then the second story that I had there, um, his audience had grown quite a lot. But then at the end of the piece, he was like, oh, and that's from Nick, and he does his podcast, Love Radio. And then I would, you know, credited it, but that was, that was it. And that got, like, almost no traffic. So if you get people to recommend you who are in those positions, you know, if you get... Obviously, like, we got, we got a piece on This American Life, which was, like, our main goal for this year... Um, and that was huge. I mean, that was that, like more. You than got a little better audience, pitching, so or or what over the years, well, or they or they they just wanted it. Well, no. I mean, that was the funny thing is uh, that that particular story. I never. I had I had pitched them several stories uh, over the last year and a half or so with 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 the intent of of getting something on there, and and that particular story just. I mean, came out of nowhere. Like they just called me up out of nowhere and they were like, "We want to hear this." So, but I mean, obviously the. The pitching helps because you know it gets you on the radar. So, so I have there are three different kinds of guests that I have on the show. Um, one is um, people that I have a relationship with, where I feel like it's interesting for people to get to know me as a host um, and feel connected to me. And then another is um, to have complete strangers who are people that uh, pitch their stories to me through the website, and so they feel like they're a part of it, and they feel like. Uh, they want to be a part of this community and, and listen. And we've, we've really worked on um, building our Facebook groups um, and branding ourselves as um, not only a show, but um, a tone, like a, a place where you can uh, talk about parenting without fear of being personally attacked. Um, and, and these are actually closed Facebook groups, yeah. right? It's not mm-hmm. just like a fan page. It's like mm-hmm. you become part of a community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing is having people on as guests who have their own audiences, um, and that's been that's been really huge for us because then you can also get really good press about 
those or and like doing topics that you think are going to get you buzz in the media. Um, and I don't mean like shock value kind of stuff, but just uh, <laughs> the, uh, interesting angles on something that's been covered a lot. Um, I mean, I also want to say, I think, like, a lot of you are probably here because you want to have get answers on, like, the path to get it, making a living uh, doing your thing. Um, but I also, I just want to, like, really encourage you to be creative in the way that, do it in a way that none of us have done it. Because, um, you know, nobody was doing it the way I was, the way I did it when I did it. And even, at, like, being on This American Life, like, that's that's a huge deal and I got on this American life um, people people would tell you um, back when I was starting to get into radio that the only way to do it would be to get a free uh, an unpaid internship and make yourself um, indisposable and I wasn't in a position to take a unpaid internship and so um, I just started pitching stuff to this American life and the thing that that did it for me was um, I used um, my parents' answering machine, microcassette answering machine, interviewed a friend of mine um, about uh, the end of the world. He was obsessed with the end of the world um, in this really uh, weird way <laughs> where uh, it wasn't about religion or anything. It was about, um, like, if, if uh, he would go running every day because um, what if one day when the world ends he was going to be chased by wild dogs and so he needed to be ready. And so I put together this very amateurish-sounding um, cassette where I, like, fed... I, I read my script into this, like, shiny red boombox and, and, and ran, like, tape from the microcassette. Uh, and, and you could hear all the clicks. And I FedExed it to Nancy Updike at This American Life. And, like, they listened to it, and I got a call from Ira Glass on my answering machine the next day saying, who are you? Um, <laughs> how did you figure out how to do something for our show? And I started doing, he had me do my first story with the answering machine and, and, and boombox. Um, and, uh, I, and I think he wanted me to become like the boombox kid. <laughs> like he wanted me to keep doing it that way. But he taught, me, he taught me how to make radio and no one would have told you what you need to do is get an answering machine and a boombox. You know, and just like, I mean, no one would tell you, you have to call like the mommy-centric, um, you know, businesses, that companies that could like support you. So like think about your content and, and your strengths and like how you can pitch your thing best. And that was long before the longest, shortest time, right? Oh my just God, so yeah, that was, in, that, was just, in, that was in 1999. Yeah. And were you able to leverage those relationships when you started the show? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a big way that I sold myself was to say that I'm a This American Life contributor. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, yeah we, we um, have seen spikes. Uh, we had a piece uh, with on 99% Invisible. Uh, we had a... a a piece that was uh, produced in English for This American Life, and Ira uh, mentioned the, the show and the Spanish-language version. So we've had two of those um, so far. Um, and all those have helped a lot. I think the single biggest uh, sort of spike... It hasn't been a spike. It's just been uh, producing more and better and, yeah. and just doing, doing more, um, more work on social media. Um, and and being very very deliberate about about like finding who in each country can sort of support a story, you know. So um, and then just it's been really interesting to watch stories go around, you know. So we I, we did a story from Chile that was fantastic, um, and that story did very well 
in Chile for the first week, and then um, and then it spread to Brazil. Um, like I don't know how they don't even speak Spanish in Brazil, uh, and um, and you know now like half the listeners are from Brazil, and it, it you know it ended up being one of the most listened to stories. Um, and th- there's things that I just can't even explain. I think actually, and uh, this is something that just speaks to the moment that. Um, I honestly feel like this is someone. Someone told me when I was starting to write, you know, just that that good work, you know, rises. Good work makes it, you know, and that this is uh, something that, um, at least in my experience, has been true. You know, it might take a long time. It might not be a, a, a it might be a circuitous path. But if you do good work, I do think that people will find it, and they will. They will. You know, even more important than. Then, then Roman or Ira is like, you know, hey, your friends saying, you go, you got to listen to this, and we see that happening on social media now all the time. Yeah. We do a story, and someone will tag their friend on Twitter and say, you know, oye, tienes que escuchar esto, es increíble, you know, and that helps so much more um, because those are trusted voices. Yeah, I just think doing the good work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get a lot of questions from people who haven't even started whatever project, whatever idea they have, and they're they're obsessing over like the publicity side of things and all that and it's just like wait wait on that like just focus on making the content and make it good you know the yeah. other stuff will fall into place that's what I usually say too just just start yeah um, alright I think we should take some questions from you guys and you can direct it to uh, one person or you can uh, just ask of the panel in general if anybody has any questions uh, but please do come to the mics because they're recording this, I think, I do, and they were very emphatic about that. <laughs> Hi. Hey. Jeez. Uh, so uh, this is maybe just kind of like a personal uh, interest, um, and you can answer it however brief or long you want, but I was just interested in what was like the last uh, job you had before anything media-related? Because I know that a lot of podcasting is like you have an interest and you incorporate that interest into media, what was your, like, you were, you know, tutoring. How about, how about the rest of you guys? I, I, I was lucky enough to get a job at PRX uh, right out of college. So my last uh, job was uh, working the front desk at the, the Performing Arts Center at, the, at Bard College. <laughs> and uh, can you, can you uh, tell us how you applied to PRX for that internship? <laughs> is that a story uh, we, you can share? Yeah, yeah. No, I, um, I had when I was, you know, I was in pretty seriously involved in college radio, and I had come up with this idea for like an online network where, where people could, uh, where college radio stations could exchange different like radio pieces, and it would be, you know, like users could write reviews and stuff like that. And it was, it was basically PRX for college radio, and then, I, but I had no idea PRX existed. And so in my application letter, I, I just accused them of stealing my idea. <laughs> and I said, I would, I would be willing to forgive you, but you have to give me a, uh, a, inter- a paid internship. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it worked works. for some weird reason. <laughs> Do the rest of you want to answer that question? Yeah, uh, well, my last, uh, my last job, job was in 1999 to 2000. I was a public school teacher in, in Harlem. And I've, I've been, since then, I've been on my own uh, as a novelist, uh, writer, journalist, and then now as a radio person. My last job uh, before the moth, I was uh, an illegal waitress in New York City. I'm, a, I'm from Denmark. Oh, this is recorded. I guess I shouldn't say that. That's, yeah. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm now going to get deported. I was I was tutoring and um, editing and uh, I write novels as well, which pay less than public radio. Um, yeah, just put, like putting a lot of things together. Hi, I'm Matthew, and uh, my question, I guess, is a little bit more for Hillary, but you guys all may have experience with this. How does um, a public radio pitch differ from a pitch to a funder? Like, are there things that, like, no one ever told you about that you wish you had known about or could do? Uh, That's a good question. I think they're very similar. I think you're just thinking of who's the person on the other end of this call, and what would they want to... You're being compelling. You're being just as not boring in your pitch to that person as you would be to a potential editor. Uh, So it's like similar things like, I need to know who the audience is or essentially like who I'm going to sell this idea. Yeah, so you're telling... I I found that telling my personal story to them... uh, So for example, I went to... um, And this this is not a... They're not paying me anymore. So (laughs) diapers.com. Like I I went to diapers.com and said... um, you know, when I was a new mom, um, I felt like your customer service was the best out of anybody's, and um, and so butter them up first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, really. um, yeah. So tell them what you got. Well, I mean, maybe this isn't going to be the case for every uh, company you approach, but for me, I did have these personal connect- connections, and so I sold my story of connection with them, and said, and here, and here was my story of struggle as a new mom and here's how you helped me um and here's what i'm doing now and would you support me so you made like you made them part of your experience i did yeah Yeah. thanks did the voicemail machine ever cut you off and you have to be like this is me again (laughs) (laughs) no but i probably did hit like pound you know (laughs) to re-record just record your baby crying Hi, my name is Kaomi, and um, I have a question in terms of, can you give us an idea of how many subscribers you feel like you would need in order to really be taken seriously going after sponsors or going, approaching radio stations, or, um, you know, is that, or does that even not matter? That's going to be a better, probably a better question for the tomorrow's panel with the business side, but um, I would say getting as, as many as you can. I don't know that there's I don't know that there's a number that you need to be taken seriously. I think it's more of a track record in um, what you can prove that you've that you've accomplished. But yes, Carrie from PRX very specifically will speak to that tomorrow and she's also she did an, a webinar for AIR recently and she wrote something else for Transom I think where you can look at that where she actually spells it out like this is when sponsors even become interested in you and a in a small way. So, yeah, there's, there's stuff out there on that. Um, I was wondering, uh, since you all have very distinct uh, shows, I mean, they're not like other shows, how much um, how much thought goes into, ooh, I probably shouldn't do that because it might sound too much like this. I'm thinking, especially there's a lot of parenting, you ever say, well, I that actually does fit what I'm doing, but I've already heard that on another show, and is that different than in uh, traditional terrestrial radio, uh, trying to be really different. I, I absolutely have that conversation with my producer all the time where people will pitch us stuff and I'll be like, oh, I've already heard that take on it. But uh, So for example, the um, there was a big um, breast pump hackathon at MIT recently and everyone was covering it. And we were like, 
I think we should, people were telling us we should cover it, and I was like, I don't know if we're going to do this. And then um, I thought the only way to do it is to send a childless man in there who, who knows nothing about it. And so that we, we like to think about like what is being covered a lot and how can we do it differently. But I don't think that it's different, to answer your question, I don't think that's different from how I would approach anything on terrestrial radio. I get this question a lot too. And I think if you do it from what you really, where are you, the person who asked like, there, you moved. I was like, wait. Um, you know, if you do it from what you really care about, I don't know if the idea has to be so original. I think people get a little too hung up on that, like, and it's sort of intimidating. And I think if it's, first of all, if it's really good, there might be room for more that sounds, uh, even if conceptually it's not so different from what's already out there. And also if you are doing it from your passion and your point of view, I think don't worry so much about whether the description in like a paragraph is going to sound like nothing we've ever heard before, but make it sound different by not trying to, to sound like other people. Yeah. The, we, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say that we have added an advantage is that no one else is doing it. So that's one way, you know. Um, <laughs> the, but I was going to say, but we do like... Um, you know, we'll take a story that was big in Colombia, and then we'll, you know, that was like front page story. You know, uh, everyone talked about it like last year, and then we'll go back and re-report the story. You know, with long, you know, in-depth interviews, and make you know a twenty, thirty-minute radio piece about it. Um, and we'll try to write it in such a way so that it's no longer a local story, but contextualize it so that you can listen to it in Uruguay, and you can listen to it in New York, and you can listen to it, you know, in, in Dallas or whatever, and. Um, and, and and that to us, so we don't ever worry about a story having already been done because you know our audience in each individual country might not be so so you know so big where everyone's gonna be like oh they've already heard this you know uh, the Chilean story that we that we that I talked about earlier was was huge in Chile uh, when it, when it first happened and it was huge in Chile when we reported it and then it was far far bigger afterwards when it hit uh, these other countries where no one had really paid it much attention. Yeah, I I, I think staying out is super important and. Uh... I think it's important to think really deeply about it, even even if it's intimidating. You know, I think it it should be, and and for us, I think like sorry, I don't mean you're to just okay. you. No, I think that's great. The controversy on the panel is good, um, or, but, or disagreement. I mean, yeah, yeah, but I just think um, I mean also, you know, for us, it's also finding these stories, and it, that's a really important thing. Finding the stories that you're going to have a, a particular take on it. You know, I think a lot of like where love and radio story come, love and radio stories come. From, come from is uh you know other sources of media that are like way trashier and we kind of take them and kind of dress them up in a way that that people who are you know like latte drinking NPR types will enjoy them but, but Nick, when <laughs> so it's like you know you, you have to like take a different angle on it but you can find but, inspiration many different places uh, but when you started the show, w- could you have described it in a way where you could articulate exactly how it was different from everything else that was out there? Um, in, I mean, in a couple ways. I mean, I think that the show has definitely evolved. But, I mean, even from early on, I think it was really baked in the DNA of the show of, you know, we're going to fight against this idea that radio is a didactic medium. And like that has mm-hmm. always been the case from day uh-huh. on, you know. Well, I, I think, you know, I just think don't, like, start doing stuff and then figure out how you're going to approach it yeah, a different way more than, like, write yeah. the pitch that's going right. to be like, this has never been heard before. That That's what I meant. But, yeah, um, go ahead. 
I work for a terrestrial broadcaster, and um, not to pick on them too much, but they seem <laughs> not in the slightest interested in podcasting at all. And uh, my colleagues and I have pitched ideas back and forth. A lot of them are intriguing, exciting. We really want to work on them. But the response that we get is, there's no budget, there's not enough time, and it's there seems to be a blockade there between the creative producers and the way our, oper- our organization thinks. How do we uh, pitch podcasting on the inside to these people to get them excited about possibly engaging in some of these new ideas? I mean, I think that's also very much a question for the people who are going to be on the panel tomorrow uh, about what's appealing to them about it. <laughs> but could you tell that? I mean, is it a station or is it a network? Or? It's, uh, I'll say this uh, blushing, it's Wisconsin Public Radio. And um, I, I feel like new ideas inside the station are a little bit stifled at the moment. And even though there's this outlet there to create this, um, it's seen as a, at least the way it comes back to me from my perception, that uh, this is something that we can't devote employee hours to. Could you tell them that things are moving to digital and on demand and that they risk becoming obsolete? <laughs> that if they don't get that argument is being made over and over and over again, but still, there's, fear doesn't, fear we're too busy for this. Yeah, I think that's a really common... I mean, that's, I imagine ninety-nine percent of of stations have that same response. I have no answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I I'm optimistic I'm, that it that it's slowly changing. I actually I do have a thought. Yeah. But yeah, I think it will also. I mean, could you tell them that it's a lot easier in many ways to monetize a podcast? I've had to take my work outside the building to actually work on it. I can't work on it inside the building, and I'm trying to monetize it that way. Figuring that if no, it, but if I'm it thinking if you could tell them that, like, it, what do they care about, right? And yeah. he is, must be one of them. Yeah, but I mean, the the advice that you were giving a moment ago, you know, just start, make it good. We yeah. can't even get to start because we're just. You know, but you don't money. need their you don't need their permission unless you you know want working money. inside the building. Don't don't I? But, I mean, everyone here started doing it in their spare time pretty much, right? Except maybe for me. Uh, But it was still, like, I I had to fundraise a lot, too, and I had also never produced radio before. But So I had needed a little help. But, but, I mean, so you could just do it on your own? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I just think, I mean, if, if you're able to make it work, if you're able to get money ahead of time, get a grant, if you can find... You know, sponsors who you know fit what you're trying to do. That that's great. But if uh, if you're just banging your head against the wall, just just do it. You don't and live there, do you? <laughs> no, but I, I, it's, it, it's, I view my employer as this wonderful vehicle for publicity, for listenership, for the numbers are there. I could hand this to them, and it would be pretty successful. But I, you know, even taking that idea that I've you know organically produced outside of my own and putting it back into the building meets with a wave of indifference, and I just I can't quite figure it out. But just, just prove them wrong in the end. You know? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, I think it is changing because I've had uh, producers call me in the last couple of months who are making deals with much smaller stations than I'm with KCRW, Hillary is with WNYC, but even much smaller stations around the country are like, oh, maybe we could partner with independents and maybe we could do things that are podcast only. And so I think that's really encouraging to me because it's not just like the big progressive stations uh, you know uh, and and so yeah uh, hopefully they'll either get on the bandwagon or you'll find somebody who is I mean, <laughs> not, to, not to get too preachery about this but it's like it's it's very easy to view them as the ones who are in power here but like guys like this is the fucking future you know <laughs> like we are the ones with the power in this situation and it's like if they if they don't wise up to that it it's it sucks for them, not us. You know? 
Thank you. Now go out and make some fucking podcasts. <laughs> Hi, my name is Liliana. Um, I guess I have two questions, one for Leah and one for Daniel. Um, completely different. Um, I didn't know that you um, recorded from your closet until just recently. Yeah. <laughs> and I heard your podcast. I talked about it on my show as a Kickstarter pitch. And I was like, really, what? Because it, it's such a beautiful show, and I knew you're, it was through KCRW, so I kind of figured that it was through the station. So yeah. I you know what? I have a little, I have bit, a little of a, bit of a... I mean, KCW, I mean, KCW actually, KCW actually does, allow does allow me to use, use the studios. studios. So, but the thing is, I live far enough away that it just, it just is hard for me, especially if I'm doing a narrated piece and like I want to change one sentence and then I got to drive to Santa Monica and in LA traffic. And so um, that's part of it. And the other part is that KCW is like the studios are so insanely booked like they're trying to raise money to build a bigger building and and for there to be more and so it actually can be really hard to get into a studio uh if i got to make it back and like pick up my kid on the other side of town against rush hour traffic so uh yeah it's it's a little so i do record in my closet that's not a lie but i actually am fortunate to have a partnership where i would have access to better it just doesn't work because I work like all the time. Like I go through phases where it's like I work every night after my kid is in bed and I sleep like very little. And so like just spending an hour and a half driving to Santa Monica and rush hour traffic when I, it is hard. So in that sense, there's constraints, but yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, They're I'm not forcing me into the closet. Okay. <laughs> and then also for Daniel, um, I love Radio Ambulante. I actually read your book before, and that's kind of what got me into Radio Ambulante. Um, and I'm kind of just surprised that Spanish isn't, or Spanish language um, radio, like you're describing, is not as popular or not wanting to be bought by the big stations. Have you ever thought of maybe going like to Spanish broadcasters and getting money from them, like Univision? Or? Yeah, I, I think you know, in the Brain Trust, we've we've thought about every every permutation of this, uh, and we're not opposed to anything. Um, you know, there's some. The, there's some issues with uh, with you know going to Univision, who has the largest network uh, of radio stations in the country uh, in Spanish. Uh, one is being in, on commercial radio. I think then you know FCC. You know, I got to pay for music, copyright, all this business. Um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of coqueteo with them, um, but nothing has ever panned out. But I sort of agree with Nick um, that. The the if at the beginning our goal was like oh we got to get on like two hundred stations it's like no I don't really see that as being the goal at all like I think that the you know smartphone penetration among you know Latinos in the United States is huge I think um, uh, getting you know everyone to have a radio station in their pocket is a huge opportunity for us I think it's coming to Latin America and it, it's coming pretty fast you were saying that you had to explain that people were like oh don't introduce me as a podcaster. But we have to introduce like the very concept of podcasting in Latin America. You have to sort of say what it is and like how you download it. And I have, you know, cousins of mine uh, who like three years into the show are emailing me and they're like, "Hey, let me confess, I've never been able to listen to because I have no idea what that is or how to download it or how to listen to it or where I press play." And very educated people, you know, who have computers. Um, I mean, but anyway, I, I do see that as the future. So that I'm not really as concerned as I used to be about getting on terrestrial radio. Um, I think that there's a lot of other more important ways that we can grow our audience. Um, 
and reach you know people like you and, and, and people like you and people like you and people you know everybody uh, who either has a connection to Latin America, you know, um, who speaks Spanish because they grew up speaking Spanish, who just moved here, or who wants to learn Spanish. You know, I mean that that, that you know is a lot enough people for us. Thank you. And I think maybe it's worth making the point that like, I mean Daniel and Nick also you both far from I mean you split the money with Brandon and I mean you with your wife like you're both far from making like a real living still even as successful as you are I mean I think and me too like you know I I it's like I'm fortunate to have two partners but it's not like I was just on staff at KCW and got a full salary and health insurance and I mean I didn't get the kind of money that could like pay for my son's preschool and like rent and you know it's so there is an enormous amount of time and so when people say oh but I have the day job and I don't have time it's true but like I you know have never spent more than nine days on a piece even if I had like 30 hours of tape you know just because the rest of the time is spent doing other stuff and that's like a monthly show which everyone tells you like it can't be monthly and so I think you know like there are constraints that are going to be there and if you're going to wait for all the money to be there and to have all the time in the world uh, to do it then it you know it's not going to happen yeah um, this this might be more of a question for the business folks tomorrow, but I'm really curious to hear your take and uh, Leah and Nick. So um, Hillary and Daniel's shows sort of have obvious partnerships and obvious sponsorships because they're they're so niche in terms of their content. But your two shows are more about relationships and partnership, you know, uh, yeah. relationships and just sort of standard storytelling. So how do you go about thinking about what your audience is going to be if you're looking to, to build a relationship with a station or with a you know with some other larger partner how do you explain you know your show is for everyone but that's not gonna it's so intense <laughs> yeah we had a we had a radiotopia meeting early on before we launched and roman was like okay everybody go around and give the one line tagline like elevator pitch for your show and i was like I, 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 I totally couldn't do it and then it was Nick's turn and Nick was like get uncomfortably close with something you'd used in the past I think and I was like I think mine should just be get comfortably close and we could be like the, the evil twin and the, but it's really hard I, I don't know that's what I meant before too with this question of how do you like I couldn't have pitched my show and say oh it's going to be totally different from anything else that's that's out there I had this idea of strangers and, and I think that was helpful because there weren't so many shows that worked with one overarching theme and so explaining that and like I have some ways to put into funders like why this was an important topic which is totally not what the show is about now but how it's a paradigm shift in the way we live that like who is a stranger and who is a friend and social media and the way world, the world is changing and that's not what my show is about but there was a way and that was never what I would have said to someone who was like actually interested in listening to the show but, but I had a way of placing it in the context of the world for funders and so you might need to have different stories you know uh, and different ways of spinning it uh, but yeah I was just really Lucky with yeah, I, tell, I tell funders the show's in English, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell them what they want to hear at all times. <laughs> Nick, do you I, I mean, I don't have a good answer for you because I have not ever secured funding. <laughs> so, yeah. Fair enough. Um, I I also produce a podcast in my closet. Um, I make a show called Rumble Strip Vermont. And I did it totally backwards. I mean, I just, just I started doing it because I wanted to produce more and I wanted kind of a house to put everything in. Um, so I just I feel ridiculous that all this time later I've got all these shows, but they're all, you know, there's commentaries and long-form interviews and 
you know, documentaries. And I'm now at the point where I realize, okay, do I have to pick? Like, is there, is it, I don't, wouldn't have the slightest idea how to describe what it is in a sentence, except that it's sort of vaguely or often kind of Vermont-centric. But I, I'm wondering, at a certain point, you have to decide, no, you do interviews or do documentaries if you're going to call it a single thing. I don't know. I still haven't quite decided <laughs> that. I mean, because I've never produced radio, I just started doing non-narrated pieces because I came from the moth and it was one person telling one story and I was like, that's all I feel comfortable with and I was terrified of trying to do narration. I just didn't know how to do it. Then at one point I discovered that maybe some pieces really did call for that and so I tried that and I still feel like I'm figuring out what my show, like there, that there isn't like, it's this. So... Uh, but, yeah, so I don't know. I think it's helpful to have a format you can kind of hang your hat on um, and at the same time making sure that you preserve your sense of boredom and just experiment, you know. But if you can kind of come back to that thing and you have that sort of regularity, I think that's extremely helpful. I think I think you nailed the beauty of podcasting, right, in your question, which is that there's the freedom to experiment, especially before you have a... a big audience and uh, a partner and you're like you can figure out what you're doing as you're doing it which is giving you the opportunity to fail which you need to do before you're going to figure out how you're going to succeed um and my format has changed since i started it and that stuff still exists but um i think like maybe now if you're trying to figure out how to sell it then you should figure out like generally what your constraints are um, in order to be able to pitch it and even for yourself to not get so exhausted in just figuring out what it's going to be. It doesn't sound like you're doing it backwards at all, actually. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. You start to feel like a sucker at a certain point. Yeah. Because, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I, it's, like not, it's much more fun to make things than it is to figure out how to sell them. But you can only, you know, so that's kind of... Now I have to do the part that's unpleasant, which is promote and distribute in, in ways that I am not very creative about. So... Much more fun to make things. But, but thanks. <laughs> make things. So as an independent, I really struggle with uh, coming up with story ideas. Really, really hard. And I was wondering how you guys, have you had the luxury of working with freelancers? But when you had to produce your own work, how did you generate ideas? Um, you mean as a, as a reporter? As a reporter or just as or just finding interesting people to speak with? I do it by thinking, what is the least likely path to telling this story? And, and, try, to, and try to do that. Um, I don't work with freelancers. I um, take pitches from listeners who I then interview. Um, and, and like thank God for that, because then I, that's a lot of the work cut out for me. I could look at it and say, oh, that's, there, there's something there. Let's like, see if they have a good story. Or, you know, no, that's not going to be a good fit. But also just thinking about, um, you know, what, you know, yeah, like I said, f thinking of the thing that gets covered the most and how, it, what's the least um, expected way. How, are you going to surprise yourself in the process of uh, figuring out how to cover this story? I mean, as, like I was saying before, I, I'll watch, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever strange uh, uh, it was a National Geographic like horrible documentary and find some interview subject there who's uh, 
uh, who seems interesting and, and isn't given enough time to actually tell a full story. So I think that's that's where a lot of it came from. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I mean, people have been pitching to Eleven Radio for a long time, even even early on. So I've uh, I've really relied on that pretty heavily. Somehow, when you said like reading trashier stuff and then going, I I, I didn't picture Nat Geo like. <laughs> well, the, the 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 magazine's very different from the from yeah. the TV channel. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we take a lot of pitches. Uh, we get when I should say we receive a lot of pitches. We don't take many of them. Um, but uh, but basically we we don't we don't lack for stories because you know there's just so many interesting stories to tell in Latin America. What we lack uh, are the resources and the the the, the producer hours necessary. Um, to go out and tell all those stories, so we 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 sort of I, I feel like we have we we have a you know maybe two or three stories a, a year that are hardcore investigative journalistic like journalism pieces that that um that, that require a ton of time, and then we have about half the pieces that are that are a little more storytelling, you know, in, in that storytelling journalism divide that, that are that are lean more heavily on the idiosyncrasies of one voice. Um, my preference would be to do more of the investigative reporting stuff. I mean, um, and, and of course, do it in, in a compelling, entertaining manner. Um, but those are just hard to do. So we, we get tons of pitches, and we have a, a, you know another year's worth of stories lined up. Right now, it's just how do we get to it? That's our that's our struggle. On that note, um, we're out of time. But um, ask more business questions tomorrow. And thanks for coming and find us and ask us questions. Thanks.